When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, point of sale probably isn't at the top of your list. It's the transactional finality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the first mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system built for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity, your managers will love the world-class support team, and your guests will love that they can get the same delicious beer with the same amazing service from anywhere. Fall in love with your point of sale. Fall in love with Arrived. This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Welcome to the second and final episode of our extended interview with Peter Bissell of Bissell Brothers Brewing in Portland, Maine. If you haven't heard the first episode, I'd recommend going back and giving it a listen. With that said, you can also just listen to this one. Do whatever works for you. In the first episode, we talk with Pete about hockey, his relationship with his younger brother and partner Noah, and how their shared vision for the Bissell Brothers business developed and evolved over time. In this episode, we dig a little deeper and wax a bit more philosophical about business, beer, and life. Bissell discusses his influences, both in the beer industry and business in general, the importance of having 1,000 true fans, and why it's important that some people hate you. Pete is an avid consumer of books on business and philosophy, and he's prioritized a rare combination of introspection and regularly taking in the view from 30,000 feet. The beer business moves quickly, even before COVID. Pivoting, responding, keeping your head down and grinding, those are the everyday realities for nearly every brewery owner. Too few take much time to consider their circumstances and consider how and whether to change them. Here's our second part of our extended interview with Pete Bissell of Bissell Brothers. So before you were opening up when you're sitting down with Noah or texting back and forth trying to figure out what you wanted to do, how did you eventually arrive at, at, at Bissell's mission statement, at it, its, its plan, its, its sort of voice, or, or what you wanted to do? What is, you know, what is the Bissell mission? We, in, during that time, during the formulation time, we talked again and again about every aspect of what we were trying to do. And my goal was to, okay, we need to say this in a few sentences. You know, we need to, we need to, you know, that's the mark of a good sort of mantra or slogan is to, is to condense it down. Um, Right now I wouldn't, this is actually something that we've been talking about. We don't have like main beer companies do what's right. You know, there, there it is in, in a word, Allagash, a main adventure. Um, we don't have one right now. Um, back then, it was Maine's self-distributed hop specialists um, because the self, you know, we were getting courted left and right. It was very important to us to maintain control of our product, so we started self-distribution because we wanted to learn. We wanted to learn all aspects. We felt very green. We felt very vulnerable. It was a time of great learning, and that includes that aspect of it. You know, we didn't want to hand our beer off for someone else to sell. So and then in the nature of making a spectacle, I wanted the vehicle to be part of the show. So we painted 
a spray uh, Econoline neon green, dubbed it the Green Bastard, plugged to Trailer Park Boys, and began meeting people ourselves. You know, we'd there was no schedule then, so if we had beer to deliver, I was doing all of the ordering on my phone and it became hot out of the gate. You know, we, we pretty much from day one did not have enough beer. Um, but we'd, we'd wanted to include these, these early adopters in it. So we'd show up, you know, the green van screaming out front. We'd have the kegs on our shoulders, kicking the door in like, Hey, we're here. You know, we, we, um, we tried to make it a whole experience and we'd stay and eat and drink and cause we only had five deliveries to make. So we had all the time in the world and we'd t- pop into new places and introduce ourselves. And it was, it was whoever was available. So it was me, Seth, Noah, Sniff, you know, one or one or several of us, just who's delivering, who's going to farming. You know, we had the Farmington plug cause Seth and Noah had gone to school there. So we, we'd drive up to Farmington from Portland which is the better part of a full day there and back with lunch included for like six logs, you know, <laughs> but I don't regret any of that. You know, that's, that's the intangible stuff that separates the cream from uh, the, or that's the wrong analogy, but yeah, you, we, we recognize it as, you know, are we going to be able to work harder than the cut? Co- we recognize that as competition from, from day one. We weren't competing with any other individual company. We we're competing against ourselves, knowing that, Everyone won't, it feels very kumbaya. It feels very hunky-dory at times. You know, you've seen the umpteen articles written, oh, brewers help each other. You could call a competitor and and get emergency supplies. Yeah, I don't think that's as uncommon in the world as the brewing industry makes it out to be. Um, of course we would do that. It's still very competitive. Um, but uh, what happened, I don't know if you, uh, Kevin Kelly and um, uh, Wired Magazine, you know, the concept of uh, a thousand true fans. Um, he posited that it's been very influential for me, that and uh, the long tail, which I think was Chris Anderson, um, in that the, 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 the first concept, concept of a thousand true fans, we wanted to make people, the right people love us because we knew that if we left an impression on someone with the beer and the experience, whether it was in our tap room or, you know, having this kooky little band of guys like the owners like deliver this beer in this like screaming like neon truck if we gave them a great experience start to finish they would tell others this is how ideas are shared now it's not buying newspaper space you know that um it's all about spheres of influence so if i have a crazy experience at a restaurant or with a brewery I'm going to tell next time I'm socializing with people who trust my opinion because we're friends, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to recommend that they do the same. And I think we underestimate, even in 2020, just how dominant that concept is in spreading ideas. So we thought a lot about that. And that was why it was like, okay, this needs to be experiential from start to finish. They need to have a beer that they've never, they've never experienced a beer like this before. They need it. It needs to be served. You know, we spent every cent we had to make sure that all our accounts had the signature at the time, Bissell Brothers glassware. This is how this is served. You know, we want it to be like Stella Artois right off the gate and that there's only one way to really get this beer properly served. Um, And then the second concept of the long tail was that in, in terms of competition is that we knew the long tail represents a graph, right? In 1980, it was Coke versus Pepsi. You know, that's A and B, these two very tall points on a graph. The other, the C section, let's say, is so minuscule it doesn't even register. 
But as you get more entrance to a category, i.e. craft beer exploding and the number of breweries in the country going from 1,500 to 8,000 in 10 years, you get a long tail. You know, there's no two obvious best choices. It's a million different little choices. So we weren't competing against any other existing main breweries. We were competing against ourselves to carve out our own share of that and own it and own the category. So it was those two concepts that really guided us in the early days. Um, and I'd like to think that we had enough foresight because we were we didn't know anything, but we knew those things. We knew that, okay, we've got to, we don't, we're not trying to, because a lot of people hated it, you know, the line stuff and, you know, we did what we could. We still do what we could. You know, we, we've got stopwatches now, James times swish releases per train, you know, he's trying to get the per transaction time down by seconds. You know, we're still competing against ourselves. It's just the, the, the playing field has changed a little bit, but um, we knew that if someone hated us and shouted us out online, oh, this sucks. Substance is inconsistent. Um, I got a short fill on my four pack. Okay, like you were never going to be a great fan to begin with. So we're not going to waste any more time trying to convert you. We're going to cater to the people that already love what we're doing and continue to try to wow them because we know that's the path to a sustainable core group of fans. When I think the last time I heard you speak was at the New Hampshire Brewers Conference a few months ago. Um, And it was at that time you were on a panel with Paul Saylor, which could not be too sort of more radically different really? individuals. Really? Oh, I love hanging out with yeah. him. But that's, that is, was all I know of him. Paul's a classic great brewer who yeah. you know, has such a pedigree and such a legacy and a heritage in in New England craft brewing. Um, but one of the things you said there is, you know, it's, um, you know, to have a strong brand, there needs to be tension there. Some people need to hate you. Someone has to not like you on the internet. If someone is talking trash, it means others love you. Yes, yes, yep. Um, and that, that um, so much... I, I'm asked from time to time to talk about beer business. There are, like any industry, there are things that are unique just to that industry. So much of it is just business. It's how we behave as humans. We want the same things. Uh, we we make very predictable. You know, if you look into this at all, we're very predictable. At face value, we take pride in our uniqueness and our individuality. And yes, there's people live many different ways. They have many different impulses. But a lot of it is very predictable. And... Uh, uh, yeah, like that, that, uh, that's one thing that is true, you know, middle of the road in, in 2020, in an age of unprecedented slicing and dicing, people can have anything they want under the sun. You cannot mediocre or like middle of the road or, oh, they're just okay. No opinion equals you're dead in the water. People need to have an opinion about you. Um, so much so is that you can, and I'm not saying deliberately manufacture shock value or try to be contrarian, um, for the sake of it, but people should be more comfortable with drawing their line in the sand and holding the ground because, um, someone's got an, if someone loves you, other people are going to hate you and that's okay. It's, and if you encounter the hate, remember that that's a sign that you're doing things right because, you're eliciting an emotional response. It's not always going to be good. Um, and I think a lot of people are scared into heading down the middle path, which could have gotten you a decent living 20 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe. Not now. You need to stand for something now, and you need to have that line drawn on the sand. How important is sort of being genuine or authenticity? These are sort of words that we often hear that maybe are not really 
that well understood. You know, so what do they mean to you and what do they mean to sort of Bissell? Um, we encourage our employees to, uh, to be themselves. Um, in the words of my favorite author, Robert Greene, to be yourself as far as you can take that. Meaning um, in terms of like from an employee handbook, let's say, there is, there's a Bissell Brothers way, but part of the Bissell Brothers way is that we're a group of very different people united in this common goal. So, you, you know, you see it with me with the hockey influence. You know, we do a lot with the hockey community because I love hockey and it's been a huge improvement to my, it's been a great thing to bring back into my life. I've shared great moments with my teammates, some of which are employees now. Um, Others, you know, uh, like uh, Bissell Brothers, the Bissell Brothers headquarters tap room is a Tottenham Hotspur supporters bar, which is a, a, a English top level uh, football team. That's because one guy that works for us, Kevin, and that's spread now into a few guys and girls um, are obsessed with the team. So we said, run with this. You know, if this is something you're passionate about, you can't manufacture passion and you can't fake it. So if you're passionate about this, I want you to share that with those customers that might be interested. So now what's the end, what's the end result of that, for instance, as the first example that came to my mind, we show all their key games, sometimes to packed houses. That would not have been packed otherwise. It's not like they, they were there for a release. They're there for this game because these guys, through their passion, have done the work of creating this this aspect of our tap room. Um, just like you know, a lot of the hockey guys, I see them down in there all the time. So it's a, those are two examples. But we do that across the board. You know, we really want to. We try to give um, our staff the agency to be themselves. Uh, if they have an idea. We can't do it all, but you know, no one I encourage. If you have an idea about something you'd like to see happen here, whether it's a process in the back of the house or a public-facing aspect of our business, we want to hear it. You know, good good businesses aren't just with one person in charge making all. I mean, we do have two people in charge, but we don't have all the good ideas. We want to hear from you guys. Not all of them will come to fruition, but we want to hear your ideas, and so we we work to establish that trust. With our staff, that to me is authenticity. Um, speaking plainly, I try to, you know, when I when I speak uh, at, at events, whatnot, it's very, uh, you know, occasionally swear. I'm not. I'm just a person speaking. I haven't formulated a written speech. Um, it, it, that's not. <laughs> I guess that's the wrong way to put it. Writing a speech down isn't inauthentic, but we're still doing a lot of the work ourselves. We're still doing individual projects start to finish. This is all the time I had. So that's authentic to me. But, but you know, in one concept, it's empowering your staff to be themselves. I think that's worked out very well for Bissell Brothers. Sort of on the other side of it, you know, how important is failure to you? And what do you do with it? Um, failure. I think we overestimate the permanence of failure in our society. And I think most you you gotta you you gotta you've gotta be ready to we've had a few brands that have failed that we've had to either drastically overhaul or just eliminate, you know. Um, and for a company that started to a to local acclaim, 
that definitely objectively have has changed the regional industry for sure, or the the local industry in Maine. You know, you could it, it could hurt. You know, I worried about that looking at my brother. You know, we we talked about like the big brother little brother thing. You know, I've always kind of felt protective of him um, because that was how we spent most of our life up until this company started. Um, and I was worried about what it would do to his, like his personal psychology of like, oh boy, like, you know, we're, he's coming out of college into this and we're, we're winning, you know, we're kind of crushing it. Like I, I've, I had, I had crushing defeats as an adult before this, you know, I've planned events with friends before the brewery that literally zero people came to, you know, I've, I've felt and I, and, um, so I was worried about that in the early days. Uh, the fact that he, I was like, fuck, he, he hasn't felt defeat. He hasn't, uh, felt failure. We have, he has, you know, it's not all public. I'm sure he has felt, uh, crushing defeats of his own before the company started as well. But to me, what it means now is, is it's an, I mean, it sounds like one of these things that you read on the walls of dentist's office, but it's, they're true. They're on the walls of dentist's office because they're true. And, um, almost all failure is an opportunity to learn and it's also impermanent. Um, I think we, we get afraid, um, subconsciously just by the increasingly sort of high bar that our society sets to that, that failure is not an option, but it's not something you should shoot for. Like I think in a lot of tech circles, it's all oh, fail quick and fail hard. I don't, I'm not trying to fail, but I also, I think realize more than ever that almost no failure is permanent. You know, uh, things can be, um, things can be redirected. I, I like failing small. Like, let's try, let's try this new beer. Let's see how it goes. You know, let's try this style of event. It might not be something we come back to, but we'll be able to execute at least for this one night. And then if it's great, we'll expand upon it. If not, we won't revisit it. We do stuff like that all the time, so much so that we don't even think about it at Bissell Brothers. So that's what failure to me means is that you're probably going to learn. And I mean, I remember my brother and I, after I just said that he had never failed, um, we went to a local homebrew share with a keg of substance. This is before the company opened. And it wouldn't pour. And there was some who's who there. And it wouldn't pour and it was super embarrassing and it was rough, but we had each other and, you know, it, it, um, those types of, of blows when you don't have any forward momentum are very difficult. But I remember driving away from that, like we had each other and that was all that mattered. And, um, I do think you should get some failure under your belt. I'm trying to think of another, uh, good example. Um... design flaws, you know, things that we overlooked or just kind of poo-pooed during the construction of one of our breweries. Those things have come back to bite us from time to time. You know, you learn, okay, talking about plumbing does matter, <laughs> you know, um, but it's, is it reversible? Of course it is, as are most mistakes and failures in life. Um, so that that's what it, in a nutshell, that's what I would say is that uh, don't try to fail, because it's some sort of badge of honor, but be ready for it. You will eventually, and it's not, it's almost always a great learning tool that you can use to never make that same mistake again. If you're making the same mistake, that's something to be wary of and might be time for some self-introspection, but 
Um, you should be making mistakes fairly regularly, but new new mistakes. That means that you're you're progressing. And where do you get inspiration? You know, having been in this industry, you know, a little while now, um, where does the inspiration come from? Because you 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 have to deal with the daily grind of just mm-hmm. running a business and and dealing with plumbing issues or yeah. or, or just producing just content, every every day people, just could could take you down. Just... Uh, to me, for my work, inspiration comes largely from without the brewing industry. Um, like many industries, I think it tends to get insular in that there's a lot of self-congratulation. There's a lot of high-fiving, which is great. I'm, I feel like a stick in the mud saying that, but that's not going to, you're making beer. I'm making beer. Hey, we're making beer. Can you believe it? You know, that was very much the sentiment when we started. It was exciting. There was a lot of other breweries opening at that time. You know, we all visited each other, um, Inspiration to me comes from interesting aspects of humanity, interesting aspects of art, Um, usually sometimes within the brewing industry, but not often. Um, I like to look at how, what moves us and what elicits that emotional response. Regardless, I get a lot, I, I get a lot of inspiration when I travel. That's apart from doing whatever we're going to some other place to do, whether it's Bissell, whether it's High Roller, whether it's both. That is when I get a lot of inspiration. Um, it's a great sort of second tier of reason to travel. But oftentimes it's not within the industry. It's just, um, I like looking at other industries, seeing how they're um, how they're dealing with customers. If it's a customer-facing type of thing or, or a um, something in person, like an experience. Um, and just thinking back to the, the tenants that we talked about earlier, you know, Human beings behave in these ways. We want what we can't have. We chase that which moves away from us. Um, and thinking about how to build those aspects of what it means to be human into the work that we do. But often, yeah, as I said, it doesn't come from the industry. Um, and I, I, I think people should be open to that. As I said, it's there are some aspects that are just the beer industry, but a lot of it is applicable to any other walk of life. So it's important to not overlook those things. Arrived all the way. It's a system built by people who worked in the industry and they regularly check in with their clients for not only support, but ways they can potentially grow or help you pivot and readjust as needed. I've worked with all the major systems out there and I would never pick another service, says Katie Neerling, the GM of Scott Brewstillery, about Arrived. You know, looking both within and without the industry, are there individuals that you, you know, what, which individuals do you look to in terms of being sort of mentors or idols or individuals who you have learned from in, in particularly, in particular ways? Mm-hmm. Um, within the industry, I mean, John Kimmick, the alchemist, um, got a chance to meet him a few years, uh, a few years ago and was, was pretty starstruck. And this was after we had been, we had seen our fair share of acclaim, um, just and I'm not a brewer. I'll say that um, I know my way around the brew house and was much more hands-on in the early days. But um, that that's not my forte because there's other people that I work with who it is very much their forte. So it's not just about what you want. Yeah, I would like to. I would like to have a more of a hands-on aspect uh, to our production process. Now is not the right time. There's too much other work to do that 
that's it is my forte. It is my bag, baby, as uh, Austin Powers would say. So, uh, but anyway, to, to to get back on track, just the experience of the Alchemist in 2013 was incredible, and um, their new facility too. You know the way it's laid out. Their um, it's beautiful. Their commitment to the core beers to always making them better, very inspirational. Um, and the other person within the industry, definitely Rob Todd. Um, I don't know him well. I, I know him. You know, I've had a chance to hang out with him on several occasions. And but I just look at Allagash. I, whenever we run into trouble or if I'm frustrated by something, I think about Rob Todd trying to push Allagash White in like 1997 in Maine and tried to, trying to sell this beer to bars. And I stopped being pissed off about whatever I'm frustrated with at the time. Um, but uh, Allagash and Rob in particular, to me, is because I think a lot of what people are doing in beer now doesn't have a long shelf life. Pardon the pun there, but it's, you know, we always try to walk the line between doing what the kids want, doing what's new and building products and a business that will carry on for decades and decades to come. And Allagash and Rob are super inspirational in that aspect and that this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, you want to end up with that esteem that Allagash has. You get that esteem that Allagash has by constantly trying to get better and not jumping onto every single trend that you see, but letting, let, you know, running your own race and letting your own trajectory pan out the way it's supposed to. So those are definitely two um, people within the industry without, you know, um, Robert Greene and Ryan Holiday, two authors that definitely changed my life. I consult their books constantly. I reread them constantly. I give them out to people. Um, Robert Greene's new book, The Laws of Human Nature, like, God, there's your MBA right there. Anyone out there looking to start a company of any of any sort, start there. Start by taking the time to learn about how human beings operate. It's fascinating, but it's also so beneficial to venturing into the work world. Um, yeah, a lot of business authors. Um, Seth Godin was huge. It is huge. Um, a guy called Oren Claff wrote a book, and I've been lucky enough to be able to correspond with him and his team a little bit. Wrote uh, Oren Claff wrote a book called Pitch Anything, and you know I'm a kid from Milo, Maine. We had to raise money. He we ran a investment round, and that was big league and shit for two kids from Milo at the time. And I learned how to do it and how to ask people for money and how to solidify an idea good enough to warrant the getting of money by reading that book. It's called Pitch Anything. And it's very much about the psychology of asking for money. It's, um, and, you know, I'm proud to say, you know, we sold 20% of Bissell Brothers as equity and we have delivered perfectly, you know, and it's swung back in our favor now. Um, Noah and I as the as the two principals. So uh, ha happy to have seen that through. Everyone made their money and then some and they were great support during it. But I, I would not have known how to do that without reading that book. Constantly reading nonfiction, M you know, mainly books in that realm. But, you know, there's never enough to learn. And just at the same time as Noah is 
constantly refining brewing and digging deeper and going deeper. There's an obligation that I have as well to to do everything I can to know more about how to navigate this, how to navigate changing trends and just how to how to be able to steer this ship for decades to come. You talked a little bit about sort of the nature of the craft beer industry and and talking about it, about being sort of a business versus sort of that rah-rah community. Mm-hmm. How would you sort of characterize the the craft beer? The phrase is often thrown out there, craft beer community, craft mm-hmm. beer community. Do you think it is a community? In what respects or in what respects is it not? Um, I The way I visualize it is breweries, uh, as in the beer producers, tap rooms, beer bars, um the core distributors like the core industry of people actually making and selling beer that's the totem pole that rises up each new head that sprouts off it is beer tourism companies beer journalism um beer related merchandise that isn't attached to a um like my, uh, my friend and former employee cam bosch runs or, or helps run a company called permanent hangover you know um those things are the different sort of heads that spread up on the totem pole but it's anchored by the actual producers but no it, it is a community you know there's uh there's people that make their money and make their livelihoods off beer that aren't brewers you know um it spreads out it trickles down and it's all powered by a passion and love of the products, you know. Um, I think anybody that's serious about beer has those moments. For me, the alchemist going to Belgium for the first time, you know. There's several key moments where, you know, you, you're brought back to the initial love of the product. Which, running a business, it will pull you away from that. I found now in 2020... I do a lot of my best work when I do look at our beer from a clinical standpoint. You know, this is a product. You know, I'm not really drinking a lot of beer right now. I'm and that that's just the time that's that that's just this time. That was something that needed to happen. Um, but I'm I'm viewing it objectively and dispassionately. Um I'll do that for a while, but then I'll come back into that that passion that initially signed me up for this, you know? So, yeah. Do you think there's a reluctance towards criticism in beer? Yes. To tie, you know, the, the uh, let me finish that. I, I guess I kind of, um, I stopped, uh, stopped my thought there. The craft beer community is great because Anyone that's involved with it, whether they work at a brewery, whether they work at a bottle shop, whether they work um, at a at a established beer bar, or they're just an enthusiast that goes to all the events, that goes to all the fests, or they have a business, an ancillary business related to it, whether it's journalism, tours, um, merch, beer trails, things like that. There, we are connected by that passion, by that I love this beverage, I love learning more about this beverage. Etc. 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 For that same reason, that unabounding enthusiasm. Yes, I do think criticism. Um, it's sometimes hard to hear. I've. It's been hard to hear for me sometimes. Um, and then in the same, on the other side of the hand, I'll be like, boy, all beer journalism is just hunky dory like stuff. It's not. 
seriously. I think people are afraid to rock the boat uh, in general, and I'm not sure if I'm not sure if the industry needs more of that. I don't I don't really know, um, but I do know that, and I think we're getting there because what's happening now is, you know, we had a huge renaissance, and during the renaissance, you know, during a huge uh, increase in a given industry's visibility and sales and growth you can make decisions and places can open and things can happen that aren't sustainable. Um, I do think that invisible hand of the greater economy is coming home to roost and that the pendulum is coming back to center. I think that the market is normalizing. And what that's going to mean is that um, I think the stakes are going to be higher. I think places that could have gotten along in 2014, 2015, that were doing a few critical things wrong, you know, those those faults will become much more visible now. They already have for for some breweries. You know, we've seen a lot of unexpected closures, particularly with regional breweries that have, you know, due to the changing industry, they find themselves unable to compete. Um, so I do think we're going to see more of that kind of real talk journalism and, and, and criticism um, bubbling up. I think socially, too. I think... Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of social commentary from within the beer industry about the beer industry. I think that's a good thing too. Um, although I don't know where we're going to draw the line. Uh, it's it's funny. I was just down at Wakefest, and there were some like naughty stormtroopers, right? Some like bikini clad. You know, uh, Jonathan's a huge Star Wars fan, so the whole thing was was branded as Star Wars, which I thought was great. And there were these bikini uh, bikini clad stormtroopers walking around, which I also thought was great. But I kept thinking. Picture the firestorm if something like this were to occur at a New England beer event. Picture the wheels coming off on social media if this happened. And it just shows that there's there are there's a lot of differences with the Indian no one no one took a second look at it in Miami. What if that what if there were like showgirls walking around a beer fest in New England? Picture the backlash. So that made me that got me thinking about how we're one industry, but there are a million different offshoots from within. There's different culture, cultural norms within our own country. Um, so I'm not really sure. I think there's going to be more bickering. I think there's going to be more sort of pushback. But um, I, I don't see us talking about beer and society from through the lens of breweries. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon, which overall I think is a good thing. And within that, I, I think we're going to see more outright criticism and critique and people holding strong opinions that we see in other, you know, certainly in the food industry. Um, and at the same time, you know, from my standpoint as an owner of both a restaurant and a brewery, we're not, we're paying less attention to any type of criticism than we ever have. Because if someone doesn't like what we do, like I said at the beginning, okay, we're not, we're not, we, this wasn't made for you. You know, it was made for the people that love us. And I, I think thinking about that, always thinking about that when thinking about can we expand? Should we expand? Do we need to expand? Do we want to expand? Is this the best for our existing customers? Thinking about that from the very beginning is, is going to be more and more important. Should you expand just because you want to make more beer, maybe want to make more money? Is it the right call? So um, kind of a disjointed thought there, but the restaurant, you know, there's a million restaurants in this town too. So that enables High Roller to do a very narrow range of things better than anyone and different than anyone. Um, so we don't need to, you know, some people don't like it. We don't, we don't even listen. We're too busy catering to the people that love it. So um, 
I, I would welcome more criticism in beer, but I'm not sure that it's going to like make a difference, I guess is my, is what I'm trying to say. What subjects and just sort of to wrap up here, like what subjects are not getting enough discussion in, in beer t- these days? I mean, we talk, we talk about seltzer, we talk about hazies, we talk about all of the shiny things. What, what is, you know, what's, what's missing in the conversation? Uh, serious business talk, um, serious, um, the teaching of serious business acumen. Do you offer your employees insurance? You know, how would you go about that? Would you like to? You probably should. Um, that's just one example. You know, uh, um, accounting practices. You know, I'm really ha- I we have a a controller that we just hired, which has been awesome. But um, Hester, my my uh, my wife's my my brother's wife, who's been with the company since 2014, her and I have done it all. You know, uh, it's a skill I'm really happy to have. I mean, we've had accountants. We're not CPAs, but day to day, we've we've just for years just done it ourselves. Um, and I, is that forever? No, but we know, I can't imagine not knowing at least a rudimentary baseline knowledge of those processes in owning a company. It scares the shit out of me. So I think what's going to come is more hardlined, more discussions around hardline. We've talked a lot about passion. We're very comfortable bickering about things that have no clear answer. Uh, dogs in tap rooms, kids in tap rooms. Hey, you know that the hate the yeast is this correct beer? You know we we heard all those criticisms when we were doing it in 2015. Uh, we were having too much fun and and um, you know resonating too loudly with our existing fan bases to really care. Uh, but those 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 bickering and arguments are very comfortable because there's no real answer. It's like a, a Paul Graham wrote this really short article on keeping your identity small, and God, I keep rereading it. And uh, you know, we 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 are comfortable bickering about things like politics and religion because there is no objective answer. Um, so, and I think that's true of a lot of aspects of human life. In beer, we bicker about things that we might have strong opinions on, but there's no there's no objective right answer. And not that there is necessarily with hardcore business discussions, but there's more of a right answer. Um, and I think that's going to become more of a necessity because as I said, riding the wave of the last 10 years, I think a lot of breweries have been able to get by with less than optimal practices because they were riding a wave and they didn't need to worry about that. I'm including ourselves in that boat, you know, uh, and I think that's going to slowly get whittled away as competition reaches unprecedented levels at the same time as people are drinking other forms of alcohol and just drinking less in general. I mean, I own a brewery, I own a restaurant. I haven't drank much this year. You know, when there's events, you know, I've got young kids at home. I'm deliberately reeling it back. And at the same time as I'm pushing these products on other people. So, um, you know, there there are, I like to explore those little points of tension from our, from, uh, you know, doesn't, it doesn't need to be an owner. You can be a um, enthusiast in general. You know, I was just on vacation in Florida chasing two little kids around near a pool. I was drinking truly. And I couldn't get full up, you know, on, on beer. It was active. I was drinking, I was drinking hard seltzer the whole time. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, those, uh, those things are certainly changing the, uh, the landscape. And uh, I think being flexible and, and maintaining your flexibility do not put your, your feet up on a table or rest on your laurels at all because this industry is going to continue changing. And I think more conversations in general are going to revolve around 
tried and true business practices and how to navigate these waters, how to maintain your flexibility so that when the com- the time comes to make a, an abrupt change, your company's equipped to do so. You know, I think we've talked a lot about sort of the the ethos and the um, the ideals of beer and and how much they differ depending on who you're talking to. Are pastry stouts really beer? Should lactose be an IPA? Those are all great discussions, but they're comfortable. They'll go on ad infinitum because there's no actual answer. Um, I think as the stakes rise due to a flatlining of beer as a beverage category combined with more and more new entries from the producer end, those conversations are going to come more become um, in the spotlight more out of necessity. It's The stakes are going to get higher. We're, I think we're going to see a lot of losers and a lot of winners in the next five years, but um, some unprecedented uh, or unexpected closures, I think, are going to occur that are going to kind of rattle our core. Um, and I'm just, I'm not trying to be a naysayer or a doomsday predictor, but I, I certainly want my company to be ready and be stay flexible uh, to absorb these changes and continue doing the best job we actually can. How much longer you want to do this for? I, that's, that's a, um, to, to get back to what we talked about at the beginning, I feel the fatigue I feel, or the potential for fatigue. And that's why. And I, I, I listened to a podcast like my brother and Matt's interview with Henry at Monkish, you know, it sounds, it sounds like he's coming to some realizations now, but I don't want to, I'll say it. I don't want to ever be there. Um, really burnt out, disillusioned, um, and that's why. Right now, you know, you ask earlier how I spend my time. I spend a lot of time with my family. I make sure to to carve out time for myself, whether it's hockey or um, interests beyond beer, because I want to. Like I just took my family on vacation. I didn't think about beer. We, we did, I did tie in some work trips to it. We had, but I didn't think much about beer the whole time. And then when I came back to work, it was like, let's go. And I think to want to continue doing this for the rest of my working life, I'll need to dip out from time to time. And when I say dip out, I mean a week here and there where, you know what? I'm not working right now. I'm just going to think about other things or today. I'm just, I'm not coming into work today. I'm going to, I'm going to do this with the family or I'm going to pursue some other um, project of mine. And I know not everyone has that luxury. Some people are working employees and they're not owners that can just craft their own schedule at will. We, you know, at Bissell Brothers, we, the average work week is about 36 hours. We want our staff to have time away from work to pursue their passions and to be human beings that aren't thinking about beer and working around beer constantly because we want, we don't want to extinguish that in them either. And, uh, I want to do this for, you know, I love it. I love it. And owning a business pulls you so far away from the initial passions that got you there. It's, it's, you know, it's what you sign up for, but I still love it. I really do. I still love it. But there's that distance. Like I mentioned, you know, I haven't really drank much beer in 2020. It's by design. Um, it's, uh, it's so when I do have one, like we, I, said I haven't drank much beer. I haven't drank no beer. We have two new releases coming out this week at Bissell Brothers. I had them both. It's I haven't stopped thinking about them. They're both so delicious. It's got me excited. And I think um, moderation, not just in consumption, but just thinking about other things than beer. Because it's a rabbit hole, you know? You can exist. I know a lot of people in this area that have just built their whole identity around 
this aspect of beer or that aspect of beer. You know, for me anyway, to maintain that passion, I need to step away from time to time. And I think, to be honest, that's good advice for most people that are entrenched in beer. Make sure you have other hobbies. Make sure you have other things that you're doing. Stay healthy. You know, understand that objectively you are drinking something that your body treats as a poison. I'll never go without it. You know, I'll, I want to be doing this for a long time. So get, get out of your own sort of beer world a little bit. Develop other ho- hobbies. If you have a family, you know, make sure that they're not thrown to the wayside. Um, And to me, I I hope that that will keep me just as passionate as I am now and as I have been about this for decades to come. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrived consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff satisfaction, and bottom line. Chances are, a switch to Arrive will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Because there's no I in Arrived.